going in our study, um, just a reminder, uh, especially for our guests, that there's a gold insert in your service folder, and if you'd like to use that as we study God's Word together, it, uh, it could be helpful. I realize not all of us here today are mothers, not all of us even are parents, but the one thing that we all do have in common is that we all have mothers. And when we were children and we considered um, our moms, I think very often we viewed things as if the, the world revolved around us as kids, right? And that we didn't ever really recognize or realize how much actually sacrifice and time and hours our mothers gave. They just always were there and, you know, I mean, what else are they going to do, right? We're kids. The world revolves around us. But then as we grow up, we do begin to realize some things about our moms as you think of them right now. We begin to realize that it's not that they couldn't have been doing other things. It's that they chose not to do some of those other things. It's not that, as the video said, that they kind of were just up anyway at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. or all of them. It's that... In general, moms are some of the most selfless, giving, servant-minded people that many of us know. In fact, the the word mom probably doesn't really describe all the things that a mom does. Uh, If if there was a a resume for being a mom, uh, maybe some of these other things might be on there. I'll just uh, read a few uh, activities that fall under the umbrella mom. Uh, Mom is also the non-TV activity coordinator. She is also the tantrum and meltdown negotiator. She's the archaeologist specializing in under the bed and inside the closet digs. She's a toothbrushing instructor. For those of you who have little ones, very little ones, she sometimes acts as the president of waste management. She's the backyard safety commissioner as the kids get older, she can become the teenage dating expert and kind of a a cover-all type of uh, thing you could put on a resume. She's the director in the field of child development and human relations. Whether your mom is still on this earth with you or has gone home to heaven, whether you look back on your childhood and all you have are great memories of your childhood and and your mom is a big part of that. Or maybe you're someone who looks back on your childhood and to be honest, it wasn't real great and there still are some things that you're trying to work through when it comes to your relationship with your mom, okay? There's a big spectrum of people here when it comes to mom. No matter who you are or your past, the one thing that we're celebrating or remembering today in part is that today's remember is a day to remember and to thank God for those selfless people in our lives called mom. Now, all of this is a great segue to the identity that we're going to look at today. And just kind of as a a preview, clearly we're not just talking about moms today, we're talking about all of us, that all of us through Christ have been given this identity Um, As a quick way of review, if you look at the screen, you'll see again those section of verses that we've been looking at these last six weeks. Today we're really honing in on the one that is in the blue. We've kind of come back to verse 9. That we are, that you are, people belonging to God. Now, 
let me tell you something about the, the literal Greek in this verse. What it literally says is that you are the property of someone else. Literally, that you are the possession of another person. In fact, this same Greek phrase that you find in verse 9 would also have been used by that culture to actually describe a slave or an indentured servant of some sort. Mom, is this still kind of sounding familiar, like you relate? (laughs) That you are a servant, that you are a slave. That's what God is saying here. That's what Peter is saying Of all the titles that we've been given, I know the last week's being a stranger, that was an an odd one. This week, I think, is probably one, too, that we don't necessarily wear right away with a lot of pride. I mean, I saw a lot more smiling faces when I was telling you that you are the bride of Christ, that he is your groom, but you're a servant, you're a slave. (sighs) It kind of falls flat. Interesting, though. When Paul was writing a letter to Philippian Christians, they always started with writing who wrote the book or who wrote the letter. Look what he wrote in Philippians. He wrote, Paul and Timothy, we are servants of Jesus Christ. The literal word there in the Greek is doulos, which is the same word as slave. A better literal translation is we, Paul and Timothy, are the slaves of of Christ. So think about this. Paul, who was writing the book, he could have written any word he wanted to describe himself, any title. He could have written, I'm Paul, the writer of more than half the New Testament. That would have been a nice thing on the resume. I'm Paul, the guy who started more churches in the early Christian church by far than anyone else. I'm Paul, the great, one of the greatest church leaders who's ever lived. And when he had a chance to write who he was, He wrote, I'm Paul, a doulos, a slave of Christ, a servant of Jesus. And if that wasn't enough, look how Peter, James, Jude, all four of these guys, they begin their books, they write who wrote them, and when they had a chance to describe themselves and give themselves a title, they chose the title that maybe doesn't really excite us, maybe, But for some reason, it was so, so important to them. I want to tell you why it was so important. And to do that, I think I need to sort of unpack this slave-master relationship a little bit. Because the truth is, is that being Americans, when you think of a slave-master relationship, your mind automatically, absolutely goes back to about 150 years ago, right? When you think slave and master, you think of whips and chains and scars on the back and oppression and threats, a really sad time in American history, right? But the reality is, is that in the Jewish culture, that is not the slave-master relationship that was being referenced at all. In fact, most people became slaves for one of two reasons, and both of them were actually not real bad reasons. The first reason is that if you had a debt of some sort, 
and you knew that you wouldn't be able to pay it off by working and, and making money to give to the master, you might decide as a family that you would become a servant to that master to pay off the debt. Another reason was during economic hard times. As a, a father of a household, especially in that culture, it would be mostly the dad that would make the decision like this. You would see that you would not be able to support your family, that you wouldn't, let's say, be able to give them the things that they need. And so a viable option, a better option than just letting your family go hungry, which you would choose to go and to have your family become a servant or we might use the word slave to a wealthy master. And the reality is, is that your life was not worse with that master because of what he's done for you. And that master would treat those slaves and that servant family, this was more of the, the idea of that culture, he would treat that servant family almost as if it was his family, that it would be a blessing because your life was better with the master than without him. Totally different than 150 years ago idea of slavery that we have as Americans. That this was a blessing to people. In fact, according to Jewish law, every seven years, this is written in Deuteronomy, there would be this opportunity for all the servants and slaves to be given their freedom back. And, and Moses wrote about what to do if a servant and his family decided not to go free. That there were certain servants or slaves or families that would decide, okay, I can have my freedom, but I don't want it because life is better in the master's home. And Moses writes about this special ceremony where they'd put a, an earring in the family's earlobe. And now that everyone then would see that out in the town and around, they would see that special earring and it would tell them that as that servant is with his master, that he is not there out of force or obligation, but this symbol, this sign, this earring was a notice to everyone that that family chose to be with that master because they understood that their lives were better in the master's home than away from the master. I probably don't even need to connect dots, but that's the kind of servants we are. Those are the kind of, if you want to use the word, slaves that we are. That we had this huge debt of sin that we could never pay for. We couldn't even start to scratch the surface of the debt. But God, the master, sent his son Jesus to pay it off for us. And then he says, all right, now that your sins are forgiven, and as you trust in me as your Lord and your Savior, come on in. I want you to be a part of my family. I want to take care of you and give you eternity and give you strength for today and to give you purpose for a life that seems maybe like you're not sure what the purpose is. And that we are the type of servants who no longer, as he's brought us to faith, are forced to be here. No one forced you to come to church, adults. Maybe there's a little bit of arm tugging with kids sometimes. But we choose to live in the master's household. And maybe this gives you a whole new perspective on a very familiar verse 
that some of you have heard before. It's in Psalm 84 when David writes, think of this context now. Better is one day in your courts, O Lord, in that household than a thousand elsewhere. And then he continues with that whole servant idea. I would rather be a servant, a slave, a keeper of the door, a bouncer (laughs) in the house of my God than not to be a servant, to dwell, to be it, to be kind of in the middle of it all, but to be in the tents of the wicked. David, the king of Israel, wrote, I'd rather be a servant than be in God's house than to be king and to dwell with the wicked. But again, being a servant, even with that context, the actual playing out the part of being a servant doesn't seem to have a lot of glory to it, does it? I mean, none of you, when asked as a kid, were asked, you know, what would you like to be when you grow up? Well, I'd, I'd just like to be someone's slave. I'd like to be a servant and just do whatever someone tells me to do. I mean, this isn't something that we look at as being great, necessarily. To be a servant seems menial. It seems lowly. It doesn't seem great. What, what's your picture of, of being great? What, what do you need to do? What do you need to accomplish to have that feeling of great? Because some of you right now probably are in a job situation where you're just not feeling fulfilled at all, and you look back on your life or you look forward in your life, and you're just not sure how you're going to be great or even if you can be great, and yet you want to be. We all have that inner thing inside of us that wants to be, quote-unquote, great. How much money does it take? What title do you need? What grade point average? What school to get into? What is it going to take for us to feel great? Well, the disciples were wanting to be great. They had this little conversation going back and forth for a number of months. We see little pictures of it throughout the Gospels. In our our lesson in Mark chapter 10, Jesus finally has an opportunity to talk to them about it as James and John brought them a question about being great. Turn to Mark 10, verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, so their brothers, came to Jesus Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, you know, whenever someone brings you a question and starts with, do you promise to say yes to this? It's probably not a good question. The disciples knew this wasn't going to be a good question, so they kind of wanted to get Jesus' yes before they asked it. Verse 36, well, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They replied, let us sit at your right and the other at your left in heaven, in your glory. So if you read all of Mark 10, you'll find that this came right after Jesus had talked to the disciples about how he was going to suffer and how he was going to die and that he was going to establish a new kingdom. You and I know that to be the kingdom of heaven. But instead of the disciples just taking that awesome message that all they needed to do was have faith and trust in Christ and that would be theirs, right away... Their mind goes to, but how can I be great there? 
I don't just want to be there. I want to be on your right, Jesus, on your left. I want to be in a position of greatness. They wanted to be great. Verse 41. When the ten, the other ten disciples, heard this, they became indignant with James and John. And at first you might think, you know, it's good that they were angry or indignant. They, they probably, the other ten, felt like that was just a horrible question, and how could you have asked it? But if you look at the context of this section, that wasn't the reason they were indignant. The reason they were indignant was because there was one donut hole left on the plate, and James and John got there first. The reason they were frustrated or upset is because they wished they would have asked the question first because they wanted the same spot, the same position, and now James and John are ahead of them. So Jesus called them all together and said, let me tell you something about greatness and power. You know that those who are regarded as the ruler of the Gentiles, they're talking about the Romans. He said, you know how the Romans act. They've been given this greatness, worldly speaking, this, this position of power. And you know how they use that and they lord it over the Gentiles. They've been given this trust of greatness and they use it for selfish reasons to lord it over other people. And the Romans, their high officials, also use it to exercise authority over other people. And of course, there's some authority being exercised when you're in a position of leadership. But what Jesus is pointing out is that these leaders were very selfish, very corrupt, that the best example of people being great or the, the type of greatness that they were thinking of are the people in positions of authority. And when he looked at the people in authority at the time of Jesus, they were using it for selfish purposes just to make their lives better without or with little regard for the people around them. Not so with you. Jesus is transitioning here and saying, this is what you're used to. This is the type of person you think is great. This is how they've used their greatness. But what I want to teach you is something else. Next verse. And here we get back to the identity that Christ has given to us. Here we get back to why Paul, Peter, James, and Jude put, I am Paul, a doulos, a servant, a slave. Instead, Jesus says, whoever wants to be great must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. See, Jesus didn't have a problem with the disciples asking about greatness. He didn't condemn them for that. If you want to be great, disciples, that's okay. It's great to be great. But understand what greatness is. Greatness is not people using the gifts and the position solely for themselves with little regard for other people. It's okay to be given a position of high trust. It's okay to have success in life. But the question is, if you want to be great, not that you have it, because it's all gifts from God anyway, okay? The question is, what do you do 
with it? And what do you do with the time that God has given you? And what Jesus is teaching his disciples is that here's what you do with it. We've all been entrusted with something. Here's what you do with it. You first of all consider, how can I use this to serve God, my master? That I am blessed to be in the master's household. First thing we think of is, how do we use what God has given us and how do we leverage it to be a blessing to serve God? And one of the ways that we can serve God is exactly by what Jesus says here, by being a servant to others, by serving others. See, a lot of people spend hours and hours of their life trying to be great at something. I've shared with you before how many hours I spent as a kid trying to be great at basketball. (laughs) And it wasn't wasted time. I mean, part of that is who I am today. God used it. But the reality is, is that maybe I could have used my time differently, or at least some of it. We spend hours and hours trying to be great at things, sports, music, dance, work, management, all these things, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with aspiring to be the best that you can be. But one thing I want you to know that Jesus is pointing out here is that by finally coming to greatness at that, doesn't mean you're great. That You can be great at something, but that's not the definition in God's eyes or in his economy of being great. Being great at something is different than being great. And he gives us this great example. For even the Son of Man, and Jesus is speaking these words, and he's kind of speaking about himself, and he's probably just kind of convicted the disciples' hearts by what he just said, and then he continues with a little more conviction, but also a little more direction. For even the Son of Man, even me, Jesus, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I know that being a servant doesn't necessarily sound real exciting. And the truth be told, if you are a servant of others, like God has directed us, that it means at times that you are going to be taking the back seat purposefully so that others might be able to be praised and blessed. But you know in your heart, that not only is this definition of being great true because God says it is, but you know just by thinking about it from a worldly perspective too. For instance, not every person that you know that's great at something would you consider to be great people. Hmm? I think some athletes come to mind, maybe some politicians, maybe some bosses that you have or have had, And the list could go on, right? Being great at something doesn't necessarily mean that they're a great person. On the flip side, before we close, let's let's go back to moms for a moment. 
I'm guessing for most of us, we don't have moms that are the greatest in the whole world at anything, all right? To be the greatest in the whole world. We probably don't have moms that are the greatest at anything. I mean, our mom is a good cook, but she's not a five-star chef. Or our moms are um, great at uh, um, banding, putting a bandage on, a band-aid on, cuts, hydrogen peroxide, but she can't give or do stitches. She can sew a button on, but she's not like the greatest seamstress. But yet, if you were to be asked, you know, who's in your top five of greatest people in your life? Maybe not all of us, but most of us would have mom in there somewhere. Why? Because she served. When she didn't have to, she got up at 3 a.m. Because she had this mentality. She wanted me to be great even at times if it meant that she took the back seat. We're not all moms, but we've all been called to this. And the question that I want you to take home is, what does this look like in your life? Because I don't know. But you know what Jesus' direction is what his identity that he's given you is, and now what does that look like at work? What does being a servant look like at school? What does it look like in the neighborhood? What is having this mentality of, of, of not just getting out in front of people, but coming back alongside people to love them and help them with the gifts and time that God has given me? What does that look like at church? What does it look like in our lives? That's the question that we wrestle with and that I ask you to consider this next week and really for the rest of your life. That God has allowed you to be a servant in his household. That our lives are better with him than without him. And now, how can we serve him by serving others just as we are created to do? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I know before this week, I, I don't know if I would have considered being a servant in the same way as which you've uh, shown me through your word, and I pray the same is true for all of us. Help us, just like Peter, James, Paul, Jude, to embrace this title and, and to consider the blessings you've given us as our master and how we can now use what you've given us to serve you and others. Lord, we also thank you for those servant-type people that many of us are blessed with called mom. We'd ask you to continue to be with them and give them strength. If, if our mothers have uh, gone home to heaven to be with you, um, we thank you for them and look forward to seeing them again. For all this, we thank you and continue by praying. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy